Our sermon this morning is from Psalm 89. Turn to Psalm 89 in your, in your Bibles, if you have them, or navigate there on your uh, mobile devices. Psalm 89 is, is, uh, is fairly lengthy, so get comfortable. We're going we're gonna to read through the entire uh, thing. There's about 53 verses, I believe, 52 verses. And yeah, so we, we just finished up a, a sermon series going through 2 Timothy last week. Uh, we're gonna, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke kind of off and on for several years now. We're going to get back into that starting next week and spend the, the majority of October and November uh, in Luke chapter 17 and 18. Um, but we're going to do Psalm 89 today. Um, the, the Psalms are, are kind of helpful for that. They're, they're helpful for you know, guest preachers or, or you know, individual sermons that need to be uh, preached at any given um, on any given given Sunday, because a lot of them are again just just individually uh, kind of written by, by by themselves. But like we said when we kind of first started preaching through the psalm, my goal is to preach through all 150 psalms kind of over the course of uh, of, of maybe the next 20 to, to 30 years, something like that. But like we said when we when we started them, uh, the psalms each kind of function individually, but they also together kind of. Uh, have a flow. They have a narrative. They have a story. They were they were curated and they were um, you know kind of organized intentionally with a, a flow to them. There are five books in the Psalter. Five books of Psalms. Uh, book one, uh, Psalm you know Psalms one to forty one is book one. Book two is forty two to seventy two. Book three is seventy three to eighty nine. Book four is ninety to one hundred six. And book five is 107 to 150. So those are the five books of the Psalms. And what you'll see if you kind of read through them, if you read through all the Psalms, is that um, they, the, the flow is, is this. That, um, so the, uh, a, a lot of the first two books are Psalms of King David. In fact, book one is almost ex- exclusively Psalms by King David. There's maybe one or two that weren't written by King David. But the first 41 were all by King David almost. Uh, book two is, all, is the majority of the psalms there were written by King David. So a lot of Davidic psalms in the first two books. A lot of kingly songs. They're called royal psalms. A lot of psalms about the monarchy and psalms from, from David. And so they kind of have this theme, this, this tenor of um, you know, rejoicing and kind of God's glory and God is blessing his people. David expanded the empires of his kingdom when he was, when he was the king and there was prosperity and there was, there was wealth. That's, that's Psalms one and, that's books one and two. Books three and four, uh, that's where you see a lot of the imprecatory, that's what this psalm is, uh, a lot of the imprecatory psalms, a lot of psalms that have just kind of a, a dark brooding uh, feel or tenor uh, to them. And a lot of them are associated with the exile when God's people have been cast out of the, the nation. And so they, they deal with pain and loss and difficulty and struggle. And uh, book five, in fact, uh, at the end of book four, uh, it almost ends with this kind of like asking God to, to uh, you know, kind of re- bring his people back. And then in book five, there's a lot of um, worshiping and kind of thankfulness, that the psalms of ascent um, are, are kind of this idea that God is gathering his people back and they are ascending the mountain back to the, the holy, you know, mount, back to Jerusalem where they can be with, with God. So the, the flow of the Psalter as a whole is one of kind of monarchy and then exile and then return, right? Or it, it parallels the story of the Bible, creation and then fall and then redemption. That's kind of uh, how the, 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 the entire Psalter takes shape. Now, Psalm 89 is the last psalm in book three, 
And remember, books three and four were kind of about uh, you know, exile and pain and suffering and where are you, God, and, and we need you. It's a lot of uh, these kind of prayers of, of lament or, or you know, prayers of, of just deep pain and, and suffering. And that's, that's Psalm uh, 89. We're going to see that, the, um, that Ethan, the psalmist, kind of uh, interacts with these kinds of, of uh, ideas. We don't really know when Psalm 89 was written. So, so just because they kind of are in books uh, three or four, and maybe uh, have, they kind of are, might be associated with the exile, doesn't mean that they were written in the exile. This is probably an example of a psalm that was written before uh, the, the exile, because it was written by a guy named Ethan the Ezraite. And uh, Ethan only wrote one psalm, wrote this psalm, Psalm 89, but he's mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 4, uh, the, the, the author is talking about Solomon's great wealth and wisdom, like how rich he was and how like, you know, like his, his king's like, you know, table had all of these fancy foods at it and, you know, gold and silver everywhere, just lavish possessions and luxuries and about Solomon's vast wealth and how wise he was and how he, you know, could figure out all kinds of, of things. God had blessed him with wealth and with wisdom. And, and in 1 Kings 4.31, it says, Solomon was even wiser than all of the other men, even wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. So, presumably, Ethan the Ezraite, the guy who wrote Psalm 89, was alive, was a contemporary of Solomon's pre-exilic, pre-exile, or maybe even he was, uh, maybe he had lived and died before the, the reign of Solomon and his, his reputation had kind of, you know, lived on. He kind of had this legendary status of being very wise and Solomon was wiser than him. Uh, so we don't know when uh, Psalm 89 was written, but presumably it was, was maybe written before, before the exile. And we're going to see a few themes as we walk through Psalm 89, right? I'm gonna, so I'll, I'll kind of list them out. Some people, some people like when I kind of say the points of the sermon ahead of time. So I, I, sometimes I do. Sometimes, sometimes my sermons just don't even have points. We just kind of walk through the verses, and it's just kind of whatever, whatever shape the text makes. But the four things that we want to look at are, one, God is sovereign. And, and holy, right? God is, is worthy of all honor and praise, and he rules over everything, and he is the king. God is sovereign and holy. Two, God loves his people, and he draws near to them, and he chooses them, and he calls them, and he establishes them. So God is sovereign and holy and otherworldly, but also God is near and close, and he cares about me personally. Three, God disciplines his people, right? Sometimes the love that God has for his people uh, you know, takes the form of uh, loving but firm discipline. And God brings pain and suffering into their lives, but when he does, he never stops loving them. And then four, uh, Ethan just uh, gives vent to his emotions, right? The, the first three are kind of these theological doctrines that we're going to see kind of outlined and kind of affirmative declarations. But then uh, the, the fourth, the last few verses are just him. This is, ha- where, this is where I'm at. This is what I feel. This is what I am going through in my, in my heart. And he's wrestling. He's verbally processing and wrestling with complete honesty. That's what we're looking at. God is sovereign. God loves his people. God's, God disciplines his people. And how we, as God's people, should uh, process and, and respond to uh, circumstances and suffering. So let's go ahead and read through uh, Psalm 89 in its entirety. Like I said, get, get comfortable. Uh, I, I, I thought about not reading the whole thing. Sometimes when we're going through really long passages of Scripture, we won't, we won't read them in their entirety. But this one I thought was right at the threshold where I thought, you know, we'd be better off, you know, taking 
a few minutes just to, to hear this psalm and to kind of let it wash over us. So, so read along with me or close your eyes and just meditate on it as you, as you hear it being read. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, the steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have chosen my covenant with, or I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne through all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging sea and when, it, when its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. Who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. Who exult in your name all the day. In your righteousness, are, and in your righteousness you are exalted. For, for you are the glory of their strength. For by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one, and you said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him. I will strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and in his right hand on the rivers, and he shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and, the throne as the, and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law, and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes, and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod, and their iniquity with stripes." But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. 
I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. But now you have cast off, you have rejected You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and you have cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord? Will you hide your face forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? by which your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to to sit and listen to your word, to hear your word. Your word is life-giving, right? Your word is, is where we can go to see you and experience you and behold your glory. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay. So jump into the first section, first point, right? God is, is uh, sovereign. God is, is holy and righteous and big and otherworldly. Uh, we see verses in the, fir- the first 18 verses, we see things like uh, verse 5, let the heavens praise your wonders and your faithfulness. Verse 6, who can be compared to the Lord? Who is like him? Verse 7, God is greatly to be feared and awesome. Verse 8, no one is as mighty as God, right? Ethan is saying, God is big. God is huge. God is incredible, right? God God spoke the universe into existence. All of the planets, all of the solar systems, all of the galaxies, God holds all of those in his his hand. If you if you were to pick up a, a grain of sand or pick up a speck of dust and hold it in your hand and it, like God holds the entire universe in his hand like like that the the difference between a speck of dust and you is nothing compared to the difference between the 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 chasm between the entire universe and and God right the the the, the speck of dust is small and you're you're big but you're both measurable you're both uh, you, you, you both, it's just a matter of degree. One's bigger, one's smaller. But God is not just big. 
God is, is infinitely big, right? The, the, the difference between the created universe and, and God is not a matter of degree. It's not, it's not quantitative. God is, has, is of, of a greater quantity than us. It's, it's qualitative, right? The, the universe was created. We are creatures. The universe is a creation. God is the creator, He spoke and he created the universe out of nothing. And because he created the universe out of nothing, he rules over it. He's in charge of it. He's the king of it. He is in charge of everything. When, when, When Toyota makes a car and sells it to you, they made it, but they're not they don't they're not soft like they're not in charge of it. It's your car now. Because they didn't they didn't they didn't make it out of nothing, right? When if Toyota makes a car, they all they did was just like, they got stuff that they didn't make, they mine it out of the ground or whatever, whatever cars are made of, they get it, and then they, they fashion it, they organize it. Here's metal and plastic and whatever else, and they kind of take stuff that already exists, take stuff that's already been created, and they kind of make it, and then they, they sell it. So they don't have any rights over that car into perpetuity, because they, they, they uh, they created it in a, in a smaller sense, but they didn't create it from, from nothing. The closest example I could think is, so, so, so yeah, God creating the universe isn't like Toyota making a car. The closest example I could come up with is, uh, you know, an author writing a story, right? Charles Dickens writing uh, A Christmas Carol or Oliver Twist, right? It's a, sto- like, it's a story that it didn't, it didn't exist before. He didn't, like, I, uh, Charles Dickens didn't, like, take a bunch of, like, parts of stories and kind of fashion them together into, he, he just, like, made up that this, the story didn't exist and now it does exist. He kind of, like, created it from, from nothing, or at least as close to that as, 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 you know, maybe could happen within this created world. So if someone were to come up to Charles Dickens and say, you know, you're not portraying Bob Cratchit correctly, right? Like, he, he should be taller. He should wear a different shirt. He should be a vegan, whatever. Right? Like, you, I, I don't like what you're... He'd say, you, you don't get to tell me what to do with Bob Cratchit. I made him. I created him out of nothing. He's my character. This story is mine. Like, you don't get to tell me what Bob Cratchit does in this chapter or the next chapter. Liter, literature professors in college don't get to, you know, rewrite what Bob Cratchit does or doesn't do. Like, this is my story. It goes where I want it to, to go. I'm the, I'm the creator, and this is my creation, and I own it, and I rule over it as the sovereign author of it. And that's how God, uh, that's how God interacts with this world, with the created order, with the universe. God made it out of nothing. He owns it. He rules over it. No one can tell God what to do with the world. No one can, can talk back to God, and God doesn't answer to anyone with how he rules over this world. It's his. He owns it. He's the king of it. And we, we can't, that, Ethan, the Ezraite, starts with that reality that God is sovereign. God is big. God is in charge because that informs everything else. I'm convinced that, you know, if not all of, certainly the vast majority of sin and error and false doctrine is just the result of having too low a view of God. Right? Not understanding that God is sovereign, not understanding that He's big, not understanding that He's the King, not understanding that my rightful place is not standing shoulder to shoulder with Him or standing in judgment over Him, but it's, it's on my knees, it's prostrate before Him. He's the King, He's sovereign, I am under His authority. 
God is big. Like, if, if you saw God face to face, it would melt your eyeballs out. You're, you know, it, it would be like that Indiana Jones show. Your face would melt off, right? Like, God is, is incredible, and he's huge, and he's phenomenal, and he is awesome, and he is terrifying. And Ezra is saying, remember that. Like, get that through your mind. Before we think of anything else, like reiterate to your soul how big God is and how little you are in comparison with him. And in verses 9 and 10, it's not just that, it's not just that God is sovereign over everything, right? It's that God is specifically sovereign also over bad things. You rule the raging of the, of the sea when the waters are choppy and rising. God defeated Rahab. Rahab is this weird uh, you know, Hebrew word that, that means a few different things. It's a person's name, but more often than not, when we see it in the Old Testament, it's referring to like this kind of a, a, an exaggerated illustration of the enemies of God's people. Sometimes, like in Isaiah 30, it's referring to the nation of Egypt and how they enslaved and oppressed God's people. Sometimes, like in Job 26 and Isaiah 51, the word Rahab is referring to the sea or to a, a, a mythical sea monster, this like dangerous, violent dragon in, in the sea. So, so Rahab is kind of representative of enemies of God's people that are big and scary and dangerous, and you don't want any part of them because they will, will kill you and you cannot defend yourself from them. And the psalmist says, God kills Rahab. God's not scared of Rahab. You're scared of Egypt. You're scared of a fire-breathing sea monster dragon. God is not. God crushes it. God scatters his enemies with his mighty arm. He's not afraid of them, right? God, God is not, he doesn't cower before anything. God is sovereign over, so, so he's sovereign over good things. He's sovereign over bad things. He can defeat them. Sin and suffering are not outside of God's control. They don't, they don't, they're not like over God and he's like, you know, I don't like it any more than you do. Like God is sovereign over those things. And because of that, verse 12, right, it's, it's the north and the south, everything. It's Tabor and Hermon are mountains. They're singing God's praise, right? Verses 1 through 18 are all about how big God is. And then in verse 19 and following... Uh, the psalmist kind of transitions to his next point, which is intended to be astounding. It's intended to be remarkable, right? Which is that this, this big and sovereign and glorious God who doesn't need anything from anyone for some reason that we cannot explain, we don't know, he cares about you. He cares about his people. He loves his people. He draws near to his people. Verse 20, God chose David, a person, and he anointed him for this task of leading his people. 21, he established him. 22 and 23, he will see to it that, that David, his people, are, are victorious in their endeavors. Verse 24, he loves them and is faithful to them. 25, he will expand their kingdom. 26, he will be a father to them. Verse 28, he will make a covenant with them. Verse 29, he will establish the throne of David forever. Right? So, so, so 1 through 18 is God is big and transcendent and otherworldly and glorious. 20, or 19 through 29 is that, is that God leverages that bigness and leverages that transcendence and leverages that sovereignty 
for the good of his people, right? God will actively seek to treat his people better than they deserve to be treated, which is amazing, right? How amazing is it that that the infinitely glorious, infinitely self-sufficient, doesn't need anything from anyone ever, that he cares about you, knows your name, wants good for you, and wants to, wants to bless you. Every other relationship that we have, like every relationship in our lives, every relationship that you can conceive of, is based on some semblance of mutual benefit. Right? They have something you need, you have something they need, so let's like network together, let's benefit together from interacting together and kind of sharing our, you scratch you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, right? If you see a beautiful young woman on the hands of a, of a goofy, unattractive, older, elderly man, you're like, you don't immediately think, you know what? I bet she's independently wealthy, right? Like, I bet she's a Harvard grad, started a business at 19, sold it for millions of dollars a couple years later, she's financially set for life, and just because she wanted to, she like found this 73-year-old, weird, slovenly old man, and like, and just said, you know, I want to be with, with that, maybe, I don't know, but like, that's not what you immediately, that's not what you think, that's not what you assume, right? If you see a 23-year-old, like, beautiful woman with like all this expensive accessories, Right on the arm of this 73-year-old man, you're immediately thinking, he must have money, right? And she's a gold digger, right? She, right? Because like, because relationship, right? She she's attra- she is attractive, and she she wants money, and he has money, and he wants an attractive younger woman. Relationships are give and take. I have something that you need, you have something that I need. Let's exchange the, these these goods. But here's the thing: God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your loyalty. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need anything from his creation. God is, is self-sufficient within himself. He doesn't need anything from anyone. And yet, for some reason, he loves you. He wants to be with you. He cares about you. Right? He wants to bless you and have a relationship with you like a father with his, with his kids. God is sovereign and otherworldly and yet magnificently, gloriously, un- inexplicably, God draws near to us and wants to be with us. So 1 through 18, God is sovereign. Uh, 19 through 29, God loves his people and wants to be with them. Starting in verse 30, we see though that that Oftentimes, that loving, fatherly, you know, kindness and provision and grace from God, it often takes the form of discipline, right? It often involves pain and suffering and takes the form of discipline. If they forsake my laws, if they violate my statutes, I will punish them with the rod, their iniquity with stripes. So David has just finished... 11 verses of how he loves David and will give victory to David and will establish David forever and his descendants will always occupy the throne. And now in the same breath, he says, if they, if they blow it, if they screw up, I will punish them, which raises this question. You know, which is it, right? God, do you, do you love David and, and by extension his people, uh, right? Do, do you love David? Do you love your people or do you want to punish them? 
Right? Do you want to take care of them and give them victory and establish them forever as your firstborn son? Or do you want to get out the, the rod of discipline, the rod of punishment? The answer is, is both. God, God loves his people, and God will discipline his people firmly if, if that is what's, what's necessary. Right? That's what it means to love someone. It's a willingness to be, to be firm with them for their, their own good. Uh, my my son my son Baxter is just getting to the age where he's you know we're, we're kind of exploring the initial stages of of discipline. He's just started crawling, and as soon as he started crawling, he developed he immediately developed a fascination with the fireplace. Right? We put him on there's carpet, it's got padding underneath it. It's nice and safe. He can roll around. He can sta- he can stand up and just tip right over and hit his head, and nothing will happen because it's it's soft and it's safe. But he is just just transfixed on this fireplace. There's a marble slab in front of the fireplace, and then it's not really a fireplace. It's just a it's like one of those builder grade like space heaters with an LED light. But we think it's a fireplace. Um, but he loves it. He like he can't get enough of just walking over and and being on the marble slab and touching the fireplace. And there's no I mean now that he's like pretty good crawling. There's I mean. We, we don't want him to fall, bump his head, get a concussion. We also don't want him to like, have this, like, from infancy on, like this built-in, like, fire is okay to touch. Fire is okay to get near and get close and like, put my face in it. So we're trying to like, teach him, no, don't go near the fireplace. We don't want you to get a concussion. We don't want you to burn yourself. And we spend the majority of our day. I mean, the, the, if you're home with Baxter, chances are you're telling him no. You're, you've either restrained him somehow, you've buckled him into his high chair, you've put him in a jumper, or you are actively watching and telling him not to uh, go near the, the fireplace. And it's exhausting, right? It's exhausting. I don't, rem- I, I, I don't remember one sporting event that I've watched in months because I'm completely distracted with this kid going near the fireplace. A hundred times a day, I've got to get up and carry him from the fireplace to the, you know, he won't crawl anywhere else, right? You put all of his toys, he'll sit there and stare at you, but if he sees the fireplace, he will like sprint, crawl over to it. So a hundred times a day, we have to get up, move him. No, Baxter, don't do that. You're not allowed. Mom and dad said no, and it's exhausting, right? And, And we're tempted to just say, it doesn't matter anymore. Like, not a real fireplace, so what do we care if he, you know, goes near it? He's old enough to, you know, but we do it because we don't want him to get burned. We don't want him to bump his head on this marble slab, and so we, we kind of lean into this, like, like this discipline of, of, this, of this little 10, 11-month-old. Revelation nine thirteen, God says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. That's how you know God loves you, is that he reproves you and he disciplines you. He, he allows suffering and pain to come into your life because he loves you and he knows it's good for you. Listen to this from Hebrews 12. When God disciplines you, he is treating you as his sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and you are not sons. We all have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... 
It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God loves his people. He cares deeply about them. And part of what it means to care about his people, part of what it means to care about you is to, is to be willing to discipline his people when necessary. To, to be willing to allow suffering and pain to come into their lives, right? So that it will make them grow in holiness and share in his character. And in verses 33 and following, the psalmist reiterates, remember, remember, this discipline, this pain, it's not abuse. It's not indifference. It's not malevolence. It's not that God is bad. Right? Verse 33, I will not remove my love. Even with the punishment that I just said I'm going to do, I will not remove my love. I will not violate my covenant. I have made a promise. I do intend to keep that promise. That's the next verses, 34, 35, 36, and 37. Right? I will, like, I still love my people. I don't not love them. I'm not going back on my word. I will continue to establish them. He's saying, Make sure that you understand the discipline of the Lord correctly. When God disciplines and punishes his children, it doesn't mean that he stopped loving them. It doesn't mean that he's broken his promises. It doesn't mean that he's forsaken his covenant. We need to remember those verses, verses 33 through 37. We need to keep them front of mind when we read through the rest of the psalm. Right? God's discipline for his children is not born out of abuse or indifference. It's born out of love and faithfulness. But often, when we're in the middle of suffering and hardship, it feels like abuse, where it feels like indifference. It feels like God has forgotten us. It feels like God has stopped loving us. It feels like God has made some sort of mistake. And that's, that's, what, that's what the psalmist wrestles with in verses 38 and following, right? He's venting his emotions. He's kind of processing them, to, processing them to God. God, here's where I am. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm experiencing. Here's what I'm excited about. Here's what I'm sad about. Here's what I'm scared about. Here's what's going on in my, in my soul. So I'm going to be brutally honest, right? Verse 38, you have rejected me. 39, you've broken your covenant. 40 through 42, you have given me over to my enemies. 43, you've caused me to, to lose and not be victorious. 44 and 45, you have brought shame upon me. Ethan has just finished saying that, that when suffering happens, it's not because God doesn't love his people. It's not because God has abandoned his covenant. It's that he's lovingly disciplining his people. But now in the midst of suffering, he's saying, God, you don't love me. You have forsaken your covenant. 46, God, where are you? 47 and 48, we're running out of time. Like if you're going to step in and intervene on my behalf, you better do it soon because I'm going to die pretty soon. 49, God, where is your love? 50 and 51, I'm being mocked and I'm being ridiculed. Right? So, so ver verses 33 through 37 is this kind of uh, you know, affirmation that God loves his people, and even when we're experiencing pain and suffering, God still loves us. Remember that. Cling to that. Trust in that. Hold fast in it. But then as soon as he says that, right when he's in the middle of suffering, Ethan uh, can't seem to remember what he just said. 
Verses 1 through 37 is all of this big, grand, glorious theology, beautiful doctrine, the sovereignty of God, the righteousness of God, the love of God, right? The salvation of God, the grace of God. Beautiful theological doctrine. And verses 38 through 52 show us how easy it is to forget all of that when reality sets in and when we're confronted with sin and suffering in our lives, right? First half of the psalm, uh, he's speaking objectively and logically. Here's what I know to be true about God. And then the second half of the song, he, psalm, he's speaking out of emotion. Here's what I'm feeling. I know what I just said, but regardless, regardless of what I just said to be true about God's character, the fact of the matter is, I am hurting, I'm upset, I'm frustrating, I am doubting. There's two big takeaways that we can, that we can kind of walk away from verses 38 to 52 uh, with. One is that it's okay to, to feel what you're feeling. And it's okay to be honest about what we're feeling in our relationship with God. Right? All of this, all of this, this venting and all of this processing that Ethan is doing in 38 and following is still inspired by God. It's like, like God is big enough to handle your emotional responses in the midst of suffering. God created you. He created your emotions. He's not afraid of them. God would rather you be honest with him like the psalmist is being here than have you lie to him and pretend that everything's okay when deep down inside you are resenting him or you don't even believe in him at all. God wants you to be honest with him when you pray. That's one big takeaway. But the other big takeaway is that when you are suffering and when you are feeling like uh, verses 38 through 52, when that is kind of characterizing the state of your soul, remember the truths that you know about God. Remember what this psalmist said in verses 1 through 37. Verses 38 through 52 don't negate. They don't contradict. They don't like render obsolete verses 1 through 37. So when you're upset and when you feel like God has abandoned you and when you feel like God has given you over to your enemies and when you feel like God has broken his promises to you and when you feel like God has covered you with shame, remember that God is sovereign and God is good and God loves you and God has saved you and God will never let you go. God will never remove his love from you. God will never violate his covenant with you. God will never break his promises to you. When you're suffering and you feel subjectively like verses 38 through 52, remember what you know objectively to be true about God from verses 1 through 37. So be honest with God. And when you pray, tell him how you're feeling. And then trust in God. And cling to the character of God that you know to be true from his word. Right? We, we have two choices. We can, we can either uh, let your experiences and let your circumstances determine what you believe about God and his character. Or you can let what you know and trust to be true about God's character from his word, you can let that inform how you understand 
uh, your experiences and your circumstances. We either view God through the lens of our experiences or we view our experiences through the lens of God and his character and his word. And Ethan is telling us God is sovereign, God loves his people, God disciplines his people, and then as, and so we need to know that and internalize that and drill it deep into our hearts. And then when suffering comes in our lives, we should respond by being honest, but also by trusting in the character of God and trusting in the word of God. And incidentally, that's what communion is all about, is is experiencing life together as a family with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and then resolving together to trust in the character of God and trust in the word of God. No matter what we're experiencing, how good our life is going, how bad our life is going, we resolve together, I love God, I trust God, I trust God's promises, I trust that that Jesus died on the cross for me, I trust that Jesus took the penalty for my sin, I trust that I am forgiven and reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and and together, as a family, as a body, we, we confess our sins, and we repent of them, and we remember God's grace, and we receive it, and we celebrate it. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In just a minute, I'm going to pray. We're going to ask the, the musicians to come up and lead us in a song of response. Uh, as, they sing, as, as they lead us and as we sing, if you're a Christian, we invite you to, to come uh, you know, take the, the elements. right? Come forward, socially distance. Right? Come forward, take the elements. They're individually wrapped at your seat. Just take a moment while we're singing. Pray, do business with God, and then eat and drink and celebrate the gospel together. If you're not a Christian, we'd ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against that. Instead, we'd invite you to take Christ, right? right? Jesus is offering you forgiveness of sin. Jesus is offering you eternal life if you will turn from your sin and trust in him as your Savior. So if you've never done that, do it today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are glorious and sovereign and holy and awesome, and we worship you. Lord, we thank you for drawing near to us and for saving us from our sin. Lord, we pray that we could trust in you. Even in the the worst, most difficult moments of our lives, we pray that we could trust in you trust that you're good, and that we could hold fast to your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.